You are listening to the 3CR podcast of Psychedelia, and Psychedelia is broadcast live every Sunday from 2pm. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. Welcome to In Psychedelia on this Sunday afternoon. Uh, I'll be writing solo this week. Nick Wallace, your normal producer and host, is up in Nimbin. We'll be crossing to him, all things going to plan, later in the show. Uh, my name is Ash and we've got Gabby uh, on the panels this afternoon, um, our new producer. Um, thank you to Freedom of Species. You can hear them again next week at 1pm. And if anything about that show was interesting to you, you can find more information and their podcasts on the program page at 3cr.org.au. And you can check out all the other cool programs happening on uh, 3CR also. Today, we're going to hear a little snippet from last year's uh, mushroom, sh- uh, mushroom event that was hosted by the Australian Psychedelic Society. Uh, as it is again mushroom season for those of you that are enthusiasts just remember that you do want to know what you're doing you want to check what you're doing it can be quite dangerous to go out there and pick any random mushroom and think that it's going to be one of those special ones that has some kind of effect so uh, do take caution there is a couple of events coming up that we'll speak about later that are going to be covering Um, I guess some of the developing science around um, psilocybin and I I think it's interesting the segment that we're going to hear later it kind of um, anticipates where we are currently and we have a trial that's um, I think it started now that's being run out of St Vincent's here in Melbourne that will be trialing uh, the use of psilocybin the active ingredient in magic mushrooms for end-of-life anxiety so these are people that are um, terminally ill and obviously that's quite a challenging experience for people and overseas trials have demonstrated that um, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms importantly in conjunction with psychotherapy so it's not just you know you kind of sit in the corner and get high it's a it's a very cultivated experience with clinicians there to check in on things and to guide you through uh, that experience and um yeah, so that's uh, that's going to be coming up later in the show. But for now, some news. <laughs> I don't condone or advocate that everyone should use illicit drugs. I think it's a, a huge decision made with the right amount of research and forethought. The intention is to discourage ice use. The actual effect is it encourages the stigmatization of people who use this drug. The risk there is people are less likely to disclose their use, even when they're experiencing some issues, so they're less likely to access essential health services. The potential for harm increases. People feel hesitant to be open about who they are because they're afraid of judgment from family members or people at work or, or just people in society in general. Many of them have conservative mindsets regardless of their politics uh, and will just say, oh well, then the, the, the government are not looking after us and therefore it seems as a law and order issue rather than a, a social problem that needs to be dealt with on, on a Drug news from Melbourne and around the world. 
Thank you. And some news coming up. We're going to start. We haven't done news for a while. There's been so much going on. It tends to be the case. Drug policy is such a broad area. There's always so much happening. There's never an opportunity to talk to you about at all. But if you do follow our Facebook page, um, Facebook, yada, 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 slash in psychedelia, uh, we post as many of these kind of stories as possible up there, including ones that don't have time to talk about on the show. But I'm going to start with, there was, in the last couple of weeks, there's been three funny stories about animals and drugs. So I'm just going to kind of skirt across a couple of them. Um, The first one, parrots keep attacking poppy farms to get high on opium. Farms in India have reached out to authorities after repeatedly being attacked by opium-addicted parrots. Um, Farmers say that their opium crops are being ruined by the parrots who keep returning to raid their poppies, but the birds are willing to risk it all to get their beaks on the opium, which is being farmed for medical purposes. Um, Playing a loudspeaker also failed to rid the farms of the birds uh, whose opium problem is too far developed to let a bit of noise deter them. Um, That is a very interesting and unique kind of challenge. And then in the UK, the BBC reported that scientists have found cocaine in shrimp in the Suffolk rivers. And that led to, obviously, a lot of amusing comments on social media. Um, Now, researchers at King's College in London, in collaboration with the University of Suffolk, tested 15 different locations across Suffolk, and their report said cocaine was found in all samples tested. Other illicit drugs, such as ketamine, were also widespread in the shrimp. The researchers said it was a surprising finding. Um... Professor Nick Berry from the University of Suffolk said whether the presence of cocaine in aquatic animals is an issue for Suffolk or more widespread an occurrence in the UK and abroad abroad awaits further research. Uh, it's a complex thing. Pollution in waterways is very complex um, and um, not quite sure the reason why it's been turning up there, but... Um, it also shows the the precision of our scientific instruments to be able to de- detect uh, things that I'm, I'm sure there wasn't, you know, <laughs> one per, part per hundred of cocaine. It would have been a very trace amount. Um, one more funny animal story. Police have taken into custody a parrot belonging to drug dealers that was trained to tip its owners off about impending raids. Um, this was in Brazil. The bird had been taught to alert crack dealers of uh, police operations by repeatedly screaming, Mame Policia, which in Portuguese uh, for mum police. So um, somebody kind of using a crafty way to uh, train their pet parrot. I believe the parrot may still be in custody. So, <laughs> um, I don't know, three, three weird... Uh, Three weird animal stories for you there. Meanwhile, over the uh, last week, the large international harm reduction conference has been happening in um, Portugal, I think it was. And um, there's quite a bit that has come up there as doing these conversations. It's a way for the sector to kind of check in on, um, on where things are at. And Portugal was big in the discussion there. One of the key kind of themes of the um, of the conference was talking about how other people can learn from and implement the lessons from Portugal. So a few things that um, kind of were uh, on discussion there. One thing that um, was reported uh, at talkingdrugs.org 
was um, kind of checking in on some things that are happening in Eastern Europe. So in Ukraine, there has just been a safe consumption room, similar to the injecting room here in Richmond, has started operation. Um, uh, that was in Cerny, I think, in Ukraine. Uh, research initiatives uh, happening in Kyrgyzstan have been focusing on innovative approaches to opioid overdose prevention. And you've got to remember that that part of the world is, um, there's a lot of opium flowing across borders there. Like a lot of the heroin that uh, exists in Western societies and around the world is manufactured from opium grown in Afghanistan. So in some of those neighboring countries, such as Iran, such as Kyrgyzstan, there can be these um, problems with opioid addiction that are they're kind of different to the, the problems that we have here because of the availability, the form that um, drugs come in. Sometimes they're in raw opium rather than processed heroin products. And, you know, in the West right now, particularly in North America, um, we're seeing synthetic opiates uh, kind of Synthetic opiates and diverted medical supply, I guess, are creating a lot of the problems there. In that part of the world, the problems are a little bit different. Um, so moving on to some other things. There was one that was really interesting. Now, let me see if I can get it up here on my screen. Uh, oh, well, one, one, one that's come up. Um, this, this is separate to the Harm Reduction International Conference. A conversation about migrants and traditional use. Now, this is one of those kind of complex areas that we've, we've spoken about on the show before, but um, in, in a lot of places in the world, there is a traditional relationship to substances that um, goes back, you know, millennia, generations. So in South America, around Bolivia, uh, it was common for people to chew coca leaves. Uh, I think it gives them some element of being able to cope better with um, the altitude. I can't remember the pharmacology of it all um, and then in Africa you've got people that um, chew cut it's a, a type of plant I think it's a mild stimulant and then around the Pacific region where we are there's a lot of traditional kava use so how does this actually function when um, when it kind of bumps up against the the strict prohibitionist uh, regimes of you know Europe of Australia of North America so for the past several years, um, uh, Foundation, uh, with the support of Transnational Institute, the Transnational Institute, has been assisting in the legal defence of people with a migrant background who are prosecuted in Spain or other European countries for the possession or importation of coca leaf uh, for the purposes of traditional uh, use. So some of these court cases have had a positive result and... Um, I mean, we don't have time to get into all of the details, but I, I think that it highlights just another one of the tensions around prohibition where things kind of break down and the way that we um, try and rigidly structure our societies doesn't necessarily kind of work because they're, they're, there's, you've got competing rights. You've got the rights of these people that have a traditional way of using, this pro uh, using these products that... Um, that, that uh, are possibly safer and more responsible than 
than what's intended by the laws that are drafted in these societies to try and restrict their use. Um, now, let me see if I can get the one that has been of particular interest to me. Now, where are we here? It's, um, it's a study of uh, the United States. There has, in fact, here we go. So, it's some data on a secret safe injecting facility in the United States that is already saving lives and has been for quite some time. Um, so what has uh, a policy analysis that has been done on this has um, found that uh, the number of overdose reversals has now increased to 26. And um, it's... Well, in conjunction with this and another bit of research that was presented at the Harm Reduction International Conference, the, the other bit of research, um, it was real data-crunching, science stuff, and it, it found that, um, that a needle syringe program in a particular part of the United States would have prevented a HIV outbreak that happened in that localised area. So they kind of crunched the data, figured out how transmission had happened, and... Um, showed that a needle syringe program, if it was operational uh, before the before the HIV, um, I guess, c- contamination, before the, the transmission had um, begun, that it could have successfully prevented that. Um, there's plenty more news, but I, uh, I think we better go to a song. So let me just get this up. We're going to hear from Hiatus Coyote. And the song is The World It Softly Lulls. And that was Hiatus Coyote with The World It Softly Lulls. And next up, we hang on, let me just pause that one there. (laughs) Ah! (laughs) And next up, we're going to hear from Martin Williams, who is the president of Psychedelic Research in Science and Medicine, a critical behind-the-scenes person who's helped get some of these uh, trials up, including working with the um, people that are going to be running the uh, psilocybin trial at St. Vincent's coming up shortly. And this was recorded at the Suki Lounge in Belgrave in 2018. It appears that um, the psychedelics have a broadly positive effect on people's outlook on life. Their, perhaps their ability to um, comprehend and to rationalise their life experience. Sorry, I'm talking over there, but I'm happy to talk over here too. Um, and, uh, and so basically, um, psilocybin in particular seems to be maybe one of the gold standard psychedelics for, uh, for this sort of uh, outcome overall. Now, sticking on depression, there have been three um, published uh, phase two randomised controlled trials, very, very effective um, uh, trials which have been uh, studied. No, sorry, I'll go back. There have been two um, randomised controlled trials by the Carhart-Harris team in uh, London, Imperial College London, and they have been looking at people with treatment-resistant unipolar or basically major depressive disorder. And they have found that there have been um, strong remission, in other words, um, treatment and uh, and improvement of the depressive effects over not only the short term, one week, two weeks and more beyond, but up to six months and even 12 months beyond the initial treatment. And this only takes one to two um, sessions of psilocybin with psychotherapeutic support, it has to be said. 
uh, and that's this psychotherapy is going to um, figure very prominently uh, all the way through this talk because psychotherapy is, uh, is really a critical, it seems to be a critical component to the effectiveness of psychotherapy. Um, so the results for major depression were immediate and they just sort of um, settled down into a slightly less effective over a longer period of time but that's not to say that a couple of treatments or perhaps a fine-tuning of the therapeutic approach uh, mightn't achieve um, an improvement in the kind of results but basically when we realize that major depression is so such an intractable um, condition for so many people and that really does lead to um, suicidal thoughts and, uh, and acting on those thoughts. Um, any improvement over the standard treatments has got to be an improvement. It has to be taken into account. The next, uh, the next sort of application for psilocybin and for psychotoxic general is uh, for end of life anxiety and depression, in other words, end, end of life distress. Um, and there have been three, as I said before, three very effective trials, randomized control trials, which have demonstrated that we can get up to, let's see, 60 to 65%, two thirds of people suffering um, anxiety, depression associated with end of life conditions. So that's cancer or non-malignant, so that might be motor neuron disease or uh, liver or kidney failure, these sort of things, um, really seem to respond very well to psilocybin assisted psychotherapy. Uh, and so the first trial was in, uh, in Los Angeles, UCLA. The second was in Johns Hopkins University in, in Maryland, and the third is in New York University. And all of those uh, in uh, numbers of patients between 12 and 50 uh, have demonstrated really um, not only immediate but long-lasting improvements as long as unfortunately terminal illness allows um, in the outlook of people who are facing, uh, facing death uh, and who are really suffering uh, extreme distress as a consequence of, of their prognosis. Thanks. The next one is the, um, the application of psilocybin in particular for addiction therapy. And it's, um, this has been demonstrated um, to be effective for both alcohol and nicotine uh, use disorders. Um, and again, we're, uh, we're looking at uh, one, one trial for alcohol, um, particularly in uh, New York. And the, uh, the results have been very promising, not only in the short term, again, for four weeks. This is, again, in combination with what you would regard as gold standard um, cognitive behavioural therapy sort of approaches to support the psilocybin treatment. Um, basically, over a period of sort of up to um, 12, 13 weeks, so we're looking about about three months of, um, of treatment, um, psychotherapy plus three sessions of psilocybin have shown that um, a, a significant number of people have been, um, have, let's see, I guess, treated almost, cured of their uh, of their substance addiction issues. Now, this hasn't been extended yet to uh, opioid addiction or or other substance use disorders, but um, there's certainly potential, as we can see, for, for those. Uh, the next one, Ash thinks, is uh, for obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, this is still uh, very much in the early stages, but uh, this is one of the more difficult um, uh, mood disorders, which almost borders on sort of uh, the, the more um, sort of hardcore psychiatric complaints. I guess you could you agree with that, Dan, overall. Um, so that uh, people um, obviously fall into very difficult patterns of behaviour, and that leads to anxiety and depression. And once again, we're probably seeing 
um, the anxiety, depression being treated, and that sort of somehow sort of um, reverses that sort of loop of, of behavioural thought patterns. Uh, so far, I believe there's been one control study and, and one case study that's been uh, published, um, but it's very promising. What we really need is some fully controlled uh, trials to see if we can um, demonstrate further efficacy but also um, to extend from OCD to some of the other um, quite difficult um, psychiatric disorders which could be, could be treated. Now the next one is, uh, is something that's very topical at the moment. I'm sure you've all heard of uh, microdosing as a concept. It's a very, very small mushroom there. <laughs> By definition, microdosing is something in the order of uh, a tenth of a, uh, it's like a tenth to a twentieth of a standard psych uh, psychiatric dose. I can't guarantee that it was 10 to 20 percent of it. But so far, the, the studies have been observational. They've been self-report online studies primarily. Um, it's 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 difficult in some ways to discount a possible placebo effect, which might um, nonetheless be very a very strong positive. But uh, really, we need clinical trials to be able to separate out the possibility of um, placebo effect versus. Um, um, true results in terms of self-medication for perhaps um, depression and anxiety, but also to increase creativity um, and problem solving and so on and so forth. So you'll find that it, along with a whole range of other alternative medicine um, approaches, uh, microdosing might sort of fall into that sort of uh, realm of, uh, um, of a, a self-treatment that may or may not be demonstrable, but I think we really need to explore that further. Uh, and we really feel that um, we've been told that Siri is not available. Uh, oh, we're back. Um, all right. So uh, yeah, microdosing very interesting. There are trials, uh, sorry, observational and self-report um, questionnaires out online at the moment. If you do see any of those, and if you have had any interest or any interest, sorry, if you had any experience or interest in experiencing um, this sort of concept of microdosing, please feel free to um, to contribute to these trials because the more information that we have, um, the better we'll, uh, we'll be able to explain some of these. So um, I'm just going to move a little further on to. Um, yeah, why, um, well, how these things work and why they're so effective, and then why psilocybin in particular. We've got the full dose here, by the way. Um, so, yeah, a lot of these, uh, I guess there's that sort of whole concept of, um, of what, what constitutes a, a mystical experience, because it's really mystical experiences that really seem to come into play um, as the as sort of the, the basic mechanism of. Um, psilocybin in particular, but uh, a range of others, and I guess you could, you could, um, you could class ayahuasca in the same sort of field. Um, I feel that one of the reasons that psilocybin is such an effective therapeutic tool is that it's just, it, it seems to have a really nice sort of perfect um, time frame, so it's really um, strongly active in the sort of three to five to six hour sort of uh, time frame. And then it sort of resolves reasonably well, so that um, any ang well, anxiety, which is uh, generally experienced by 100% of participants in these trials, um, is resolved by the end of the, of the six to eight hour period. Um, physiological responses such as high blood pressure, um, fast heart rate, uh, various other maybe gastro sort of issues are 
uh, always resolved by that sort of six to eight hour period. And, and in fact, in all of the trials that have uh, been conducted using psilocybin for, for example, end of life anxiety, uh, which amounts to 80 to 100 participants, um, there has been no need for any what they call rescue medication or anything to, um, to uh, help people get through uh, the process other than be on their own um, capacity to self-heal. And as, as Dean alluded to before, the longer term um, benefits of these treatments um, is really, they are really incontrovertible. They're, they're um, arguable in terms of uh, um, the ability to deal with issues that people are having a lot of trouble dealing with otherwise. So the, um, the mystical experiences generally sort of uh, can be enumerated in terms of sort of a sense of unity or oneness. You might be familiar with these sort of concepts already. Uh, a sense of sort of wonder or awe, uh, a sort of meaningful um, philosophical or psychological insight, um, a positive mood, what they call ineffability, so an inability to really um, express or explain things, uh, and then this sort of transcendence. So these are the kinds of sort of peak experiential sort of concepts that a number of you It's difficult to argue against the potential um, benefits of these in terms of putting us into uh, a different kind of perspective and pushing that reset button that Dan was talking about uh, before. So finally, um, the question is, um, oh, there's your stick experience. <laughs> Anybody been there? Uh, and then finally, the, the, the question is, where do we go from here? Where, where do we next? Um, and uh, I would like to think that there will be uh, a lot more research to come. Uh, there seems to have been a huge shift in, uh, in official responses and, and sort of feelings about these, so I'd say we've seen a definite thawing in, the, in that sort of Cold War against psychedelic research, which started in about 1971, went through to the early to mid-90s, so gradually, um, and then increasingly quickly has, uh, has dissolved since then. So, uh, I would say to you that uh, we're actually um, quite close in Australia. We're approaching the time at which we feel that it, it will be possible to, for Australia to join the global uh, move towards uh, psychedelic medical research. Um, I've demonstrated just a moment ago that, uh, that these uh, research trials have already been uh, completed and with very promising results overseas. And uh, I guess with your support, I hope, uh, and also the support of others. That's um, moral support on the one hand, but uh, ultimately we're looking for, for financial support as well. Because I have to say that this kind of research is not going to be government funded for quite some time. Australia is very strongly wedded to a public funding model at the moment. Uh, philanthropy is not uh, such a strong feature of Australian research, but we're hoping that that's going to change and that there are signs, there are actually signs that that is changing for us. Um, so I'd like to say that um, the future looks quite bright, promising from our point of view. The fact that we've got such a fantastic turnout today uh, is, is testament to that. Uh, and I hope that you'll join with me in looking forward to a very uh, positive future for psychedelic research and therapeutic uh, applications. Thank you. From every corner of the land, womankind Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs.
militantly, never you fear. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Get a healthy dose of anti-nuclear, peace and sustainability issues on The Radioactive Show. 10am Saturdays on 3CR Community Radio, 855 on your AM dial. And also podcast and web streamed on the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au. The Radioactive Show, where every bit of exposure makes you stronger. And we were hearing from Martin Williams, president of Psychedelic Research in Science and Medicine, uh, just before those little promos. We've been having a bit of trouble getting Mr. Nick Wallace on the phone, so we're going to go to a song and see if we can get him on the line. Otherwise, we've got Penny Hills joined us in the studio, and we'll just come back and talk about all things pill testing in the United Nations. So now you are going to hear from the Vibraphonic Orchestra, Technics Slow Grind. And that was the Vibraphonic Orchestra, uh, Technics Slow Grind. Um, and we've got Penny Hill joining us in the Hello. studio. <laughs> hey, Penny. We weren't able to sort Nick out. Nick will be back in the studio. Actually, I think next week we're doing a live outside broadcast. So maybe the week after we'll play all the stuff from the um, Nimbin uh, Mardi Gras. Um, I guess just briefly of note there was the fact that the hemp embassy got raided in a pretty yeah, heavy-handed kind of raid. There was, you know, riot police on the streets and it certainly seemed to be... A little bit of a different tone maybe to um, how it's gone other times. Similar to here in Melbourne where we saw um, a young person struck by a police officer at the cannabis picnic on um, April 20 down here in Flagstaff Gardens. Turned um, an otherwise, I guess, peaceful gathering that's had a good relationship with the police for nine years now into quite a tense kind of thing for a while there. Um, but we'll put all that aside and come back to it in a later show. Welcome back on the show, Penny. Thank you. It's nice to be here. It's been a little while since I've been on the show. And we were both up at Groove in the Moo. Yeah. Uh, was it last weekend? Yeah, Feels it was like only last Sunday. <laughs> so the, I guess the, the stuff reported in the media, um, one of the substances that was found last year, where you were also at the trial last year, N-ethylpentalone was discovered in seven samples yeah. this time, and yeah. all seven people uh, decided to discard that. That's right. How do you feel it went this year compared to last year? I think it went really well this year. It was a lot bigger, um, and we had a lot more capacity to see more people and have more people come through. It's really hard to 
gauge how many, like you know, we couldn't really predict how many people would come in. And they'd also changed the site of the um, festival as well. Last year there was only about 18,000 and this year there was 25,000. So the festival itself grew mm-hmm. a lot. Um, so it was hard to predict, but we did have like double the amount of technology and team, well, more than double the team. I think we had uh, like 30 people plus the evaluation team this year compared to, I think, I don't know, seven or eight of us last year, yeah, right. all doing, all doing, uh, crossover kind of roles, just trying, trying to get it going. So, um, yeah, I think it went really well. It was, I think it was really well received by, um, the punters that came in and used the service. We had a really good relationship this year with the festival organisers and the other health and medical staff that were there. Um, yeah, good crossover between between the teams and obviously we were really happy that people who did um, bring in samples that were identified as dangerous um, and ethylpendolone's been um, uh, related to uh, drug-related deaths in the US and New Zealand before. So um, it was really amazing to be able to give people that knowledge and that information and then they can make a much more informed decision about um, what they're planning to do later in the day. Um, we also had um, really good interventions uh, with a lot of people that came through the service. So um, from my perspective as a, as a worker in health promotion, working with a lot of different populations who use drugs, um, this is quite different because these are people that uh, have never actually mentioned to their GP or any health professional that they do use drugs recreationally. Um, and they might, may never need to like have to speak to a health professional, but in, but to provide them information they didn't even realise um, you could speak to a health professional about is quite quite extraordinary, I think, because uh, a lot of the interactions we had with people, um, they kind of didn't realise. A lot of people are already quite informed in kind of harm reduction techniques in how to um, reduce harm and risk related to what they what they were doing but with that extra information we could provide them and actually give them a space to feel comfortable to speak to a health and medical um, practitioner as well if they wanted about what what their kind of plan for the day was and and you know if they had different um, if they came in with a group of friends and had been using different substances and were in a different kind of um, state of mind than other people to really give them an individualized brief intervention mm-hmm. so one of the things that um, I saw reported, um, I think it was in like a medical journal type publication um, with an interview with David Caldicott, um, uh, emergency physician at Calvary Hospital, one of the drivers of this for the last nearly two decades. Mm. Um, one of the things that he highlighted that um, everybody's talking about the N-ethylpentalone and, and maybe we can come back to that and explain a little bit more about what that is. But one of the other things that he highlighted that was maybe a little bit different this year was uh, quite a few people coming in with higher purity MDMA. So maybe pills or something else that had like a, a significant amount of MDMA in there and mm. um, similar kind of intervention that could be given for those people where they might not have understood the risks from MDMA in itself. Yeah, because I think a lot of people, um, you know, it's really, um, what's the word? A lot of people think that pill testing is like a red light, green light thing, and it absolutely isn't that at all. It's about informing people on the substance that they're planning to use. And when it comes out as quite high purity, not you know, m- stronger than what we usually see in Australia, it's a really good um, opportunity to have an intervention with people um, to kind of... Um, 
speak about the risks that are involved with MDMA use because I think a lot of people think, you know, maybe it's only adulterated MDMA that holds risks, but of course we know that there's a lot of different risks to do with different drug use. Yeah, and that's that's the essence of people that are more familiar with this, certainly ourselves and Nick and, you know, we talk about it on this show, is like identifying the potentially dangerous substances is um, only only like a small part of it the the idea behind the service is that it's a way i mean that's that's sort of part of it and important in itself certainly to be more um efficacious with a national warning system which Mm. is one of the interesting things that's come out of the queensland government after the trial is that um they actually want to take it to coag the council of australian governments because their view uh, i guess the view of the government in queensland is that they can see that it works they're potentially interested in trying it but they feel like a nationally coordinated approach is going to be better than ad hoc mm, absolutely. And certainly I an early warning system would be a part of that an early warning system could be rolled out or the beginnings of it could be established whether or not different jurisdictions ever embraced pill testing because like, mm. that could come from a hospital that's identified a substance where somebody's come in and they're unwell and that substance could be identified. Um, it could come from customs, you know, seizures, police seizures, a range of different sources could yeah. inform that. And that kind of information sharing can make it um, beneficial for doctors who can have some kind of sense what a strange presentation that's coming through their door might be related to. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's um, a really important point. I think because we obviously have different various early warning systems in Australia in with seizure data and, and things like that in national surveys, but they're not um, uh, not timely in the way that if you pick something up that people are using that day, you can really get the information out there. And I think it, I, I don't know how it will work because obviously all police data is jurisdictional and things, which is why it's good to take to COAG, I guess. Mm. Um because I don't know how much of that sharing is done, the behind-the-scenes kind of sharing is done through different jurisdictions now as well, because obviously the customs and then... Yeah, well, my understanding is it's pretty poor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And when I spoke to... Um, I, I spoke about this with Fiona Meesham from The Loop in the UK, and, yeah, and you know, different. my kind of... Um, my theory on that was that that would be something that would be relatively easy to set up and her take was that it just wasn't that way. Mm. <laughs> it was actually quite a large challenge just to get, you know, health services and police services to talk to each other about this kind of stuff. And, um, well, I was surprised by that, but I guess that's sometimes the nature of bureaucracies. Things have a way that they're done and, and it takes some time to maybe shift them a little bit. Mm. Um, so you were also... In Europe, well, you're all over the place all the time, aren't you? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> you were also in Europe for the United Nations talks um, yeah, a couple it was of months a, ago now. It was the high-level, what was it called, high-level ministerial segment uh, in March. So, yeah, it was probably about five-ish weeks ago, yep. end of March, um, which I think Nick Kent from SSDP came in and, and spoke about probably a few weeks ago when he got home. Um, it was a re- it was really big session this year because it was um, the ten year review of the two thousand and nine targets. The UNODC seems to revise their targets every ten years, um, and yeah, the, it, it's interesting how such a high level meeting comes together and um, agrees on 
new targets. There was a, a lot of push from various civil society organisations to um, align the UN drug tar- goals and targets with health and human rights and obviously the sustainable d- development agenda that the rest of or the vast majority of UN uh, entities are following. Um, but there was a lot of member states there who are um, keen to just revise or continue on the goals that um, were set 10 years ago in um, eradication of drug use and, and drug trafficking and, and things like that. So it was a real mixed bag this year with some member states um, pushing for more health-based approach and other member states wanting to continue that um, law enforcement, predominantly law enforcement approach. And so we we spoke to Nick Kent and it was his kind of first first time there. Yeah. For you, so it, to was take your, um, it was my third, fifth, fifth session. Fifth? <laughs> Jeez, okay. Um, and Where so does the time go? What, what was your take on the trajectory? Like, you to know, the future? Well, over the time that you've been going, has there been notable changes, like, at that front level or all the changes happening behind the scenes? I think like, there has. Like, it, it's one of those things that it happens every year and you feel like no progress is made. You're all there for a week and it's lots of high-level talks and you kind of get to the end of the week like has much changed but just since 2016. So I've started, I started going to Vienna, um, which is where they hold the annual session uh, in 2016 and then also went to the high-level session that was held in New York that year and then I've been going back to Vienna since and um, I think there has been a lot of progression actually in terms of uh, there's been a lot of support for civil society um, coming on board with various delegations, Canada, New Zealand, um, European countries are getting quite strong in um, advocating f- to have their civil society associates from their country there. Australia's um, quite good at that as well in compared to, to other member states that would um, prefer to not have any civil society input and have it gov- only government. Um, so in terms of civil society interaction, I think we have made a lot of progress and we will continue um, in the future Um, compared to, say, you know, the late 90s and then 10 years ago when they set the other targets. I I think there was only a handful of civil society reps there. Um, So it is, there is progress. Yeah. Um, It just sometimes feels quite, quite slow when you're there. And um, do you think some of that's now coming from from North America, one of the bastions of the drug war who has exported it all over the world? That's one of the news articles I didn't quite get to was on a report basically highlighting how much damage the United States has done globally exporting their drug war. Is, is some of that coming from North America now where, you know, the, the kind of scale of the problem that they've created for themselves to some extent is so apparent? Um. No, I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't kind of see it that way. I think th- this year um, the US and, and Canada had a combined resolution on the opioid public health emergency and how to respond to that, which is uh, really interesting because when you look at the rest of the world, developing nations, most of Africa and Asian nations and the Pacific have no access to opioids and they have the exact opposite problem where they need and and in these UN sessions it's not even though it's the commission on narcotic drugs um there is a lot of discussions on access to essential medicines as well in these type of countries so um it's interesting to obviously North America with different public health crises around opioids is in a very different boat to um other countries so it's interesting when you bring them all together and when you think about well 
there are only two member states of all the 53 member states of the, of the Commission on Narcotic Drugs and then the broader UN member states as well. Mm. Um, but that, yeah, there's definitely, the, and there's, a, there's pushes for various early warning systems in terms of not just public health ones like the one we, we were just talking about we'd like to see in Australia where actual um, the public can, can receive the warnings as well. Um, but there's big uh, international early warning systems of what's being trafficked and what's being caught, um, found mm-hmm. in customs and where it's coming from, where it's going. So, yeah, but that's kind of a similar thing but very different because that wouldn't be public some of those surveillance systems aren't public at all. Yeah. And um, just before we went live to air, you reminded me that you got elected to another oh, yeah. board. <laughs> yeah. is, is that like six boards or something you're on yeah, now? Yeah, it's six. Nice. <laughs> it's six. Um, yeah, I've just been... When I, when I was over in Vienna um, in March, I was nominated and um, elected to the position of Deputy Secretary of the v- Vienna NGO Committee on Drugs, which is basically every UN... Um, Entity, well, maybe not every, but most UN entities do have um, these committees of NGOs where, whereby if civil society wants to join, they kind of join the committee. So the, the Committee on Drugs in Vienna is about 200 organisations from all over the world looking at, you know, focus on different civil society um, things like some very pro-reform, some very pro-drug-free, uh, pro and everyone kind of gets put in a room together and, and we all fall under the same civil society hat regardless of what you are advocating for. Um, so I was elected to um, the deputy secretary position there on, on the board for the next couple of years. So um, basically my role there is helping different civil society organisations access the, ses- the session and when civil society does get a chance to intervene or speak in any of the sessions, we... Um, we kind of put out the call, for the nominations for who can speak and, and we help select those speakers so, to try and keep it all balanced. So kind of helping to coordinate the integration of these civil society groups into that big official process, really. Yeah, because typically, I mean, the UN set up as a government, you know, for governments to speak and not in every session we don't have the opportunity to intervene as civil society. It really just depends how long the member states speak for, if they all want to speak and if there's time at the end civil society can speak for three minutes or something. So really coordinating that. I remember um, when we spoke, I think it might have even been when we spoke here at the radio show after the 2016 kind of sessions, the UNGAS session there, one of the things that you highlighted at the the time was the the fact that all of these civil society groups like got shut out. And Mm. in some cases, literally, the doors were barred and they all had to sit outside the building or outside the room. And um, I guess one of the, the, you know, that was not necessarily a great thing, but at the time I recall you highlighting that one of the benefits of that was that these civil society groups started to network a little bit better. Mm. Is this kind of part of the outcome of that process that maybe began back in 2016 of these civil society groups starting to better coordinate? So the civil society groups have been running longer. It gets it kind of gets quite complicated. The Vienna one where the UNODC is based has been running since the 70s there's also a new york ngo committee um on drugs we because as as new york is the where un headquarters is and when they do have high level segments there concerning drugs that's when that kind of group gets involved um and it's now there's a real push to bring those two um committees together um yeah to keep that networking up and and it's you know not just the new york based 
in New York and Vienna based in Vienna because as we know UN is global so when it does become that North American and European focus where do the rest of us fall in as well like for example SSDP Australia who I was representing at the first the first few years I was there um, we're a member of both the Vienna and the New York committees right but now um, there's a push to kind of coordinate and bring those committees together cool as a big global yeah, committee, yeah. NGO committee on drugs yeah 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 Interesting, interesting. Um, well, we're nearly at the end of the show. Like, so what I might do is just highlight a couple of upcoming events and then we can chat a little bit more to close out the show. So um, coming up at uh, La Trobe University, Students for Sensible Drug Policy La Trobe is going to be hosting an event called Intro to Psychedelic Mushrooms, The History, Harms and Benefits. There's going to be a whole bunch of speakers there. Um, I think, uh, hang on, where are we? The details are down here. We've got people from the Psychedelic Society, I think. Yeah, here we go. Expert panel. Oh, Nick. Nick Wallace, the guy that we didn't manage to get on the line today. He's going to be there uh, talking about it. Jess Murray, um, harm reduction expert, is going to be there. Dr. Martin Williams, who we heard about in the segment earlier, will be there kind of updating us on I guess what you heard uh, earlier in the show and Dr. Paul I cannot pronounce that last name no not even going to try the executive officer of Mind Medicine Australia now that's happening on the 22nd of May at 6 p.m it's a Wednesday night and that will be at the Western Lecture Theatre out at La Trobe University so tell your friends bring your friends come along Next week, we will be at Garden States, the Ethnobotanical Symposium. This is hosted by Entheogenesis Australis, uh, one of the biggest kind of psychedelic organizations in Australia. They host a biannual uh, big psychedelic conference, and often in between those bigger conferences, they'll run events like this one. Um, and there's going to be a range of amazing speakers there, workshops, the whole kit and caboodle, um, tickets uh, range from 40 to to $100, and you can buy them online. Uh, I think it's ega.org is the website, or just come to the Encyclopedia uh, Facebook page, or just look up Garden States uh, on the 12th of May, and that'll be happening all day, and we will actually be doing a live outside broadcast there, so you can hear from us live at the time. And that's about it for the show. Thanks, Penny Hill. Thanks, Gabby, Thanks. on the panels. And up next is Queering the, o- Queering the Air. Stay tuned. This has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear in Psychedelia live every Sunday from 2 p.m. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.